Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. This bonus episode is a recording of the opening comments from a conference held at the Santa Cruz Mission State Historic Park on August 27, 2021. The event was held the day prior to the El Camino Bell removal in Santa Cruz and was called Telling and Teaching the Truth of the California Missions and was co-sponsored by the Amamutsun Tribal Band, the Ohlone Costaloan Esalen Nation, the UC Santa Cruz American Indian Resource Center, and the University of California Critical Mission Studies Program. This is the first half of a panel entitled Telling the Truth of the California Missions. The panel was moderated by Mary Lopez Kiefer, Senior Advisor to the Tribal Council of the San Luis Rey Band of Mission Indians and included a talk by Dr. Stan Rodriguez, Director and President of Kumyai Community College and Councilman of the Santa Isabel Kumyai Nation. His talk is entitled, Impact of Missions on Language, Culture, Land Claims, and Spirituality. The second panelist is Dr. Bernard Gordillo, a postdoctoral associate of the Institute of Sacred Music at Yale University. His talk is entitled, Sounds, Silences, and Vestiges of California Mission Bells. A final note before we begin, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. So thank you again. Uh, my name is Mary Lopez Kiefer. I am a tribal member of the San Luis Rey Band of Mission Indians. Uh, the San Luis Rey Mission is located in Oceanside, California, in San Diego County, and uh, my ancestors um, come from that mission. Um, I'm also a senior advisor to the San Luis Rey Band of Mission Indians Tribal Council uh, and a member of the California Native American Heritage Commission and a member of the University of California's Office of the President's Native American Advisory Council. And it's my honor to be the co-chair of the uh, University of California's Critical Mission Studies Project. So this panel is entitled Telling the Truth of the California Missions. And we are going to hear um, from academic leaders uh, in this area. And the first one we're gonna hear from is Dr. Stanley Rodriguez, who is director and president of the Kumeyaay uh, Community College and a tribal council member of the Santa Isabel Ipai Kumeyaay Nation. And he'll be talking about the impact of missions on language, culture, land claims, and spirituality. And then we're gonna hear from Dr. Bernard Gordillo, a postdoctoral associate of the Institute of Sacred Music at Yale University. And he's going to be speaking to us today about sounds, silences, and vestiges of California mission bells. So we're gonna go ahead and begin um, with uh, Dr. Stanley Rodriguez. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Stan Rodriguez. I'm from the Santa Isabel Band of the Ipai Nation. 
And it's an honor for me to come up here. And when we talk about these things that, you know, the missions and how they've impacted our people, we need to first look at California, this area where the missions came. And some people would call this, and I'll call it God's country. The land is beautiful. And the diversity that is here. When we talk about language diversity, there is more language diversity in California than any other part of the world except for Papua New Guinea. That is something incredible. When we talk about, look, look at these trees. And when we talk about the redwoods, when we talk about, you know, the, the oak, you know, the, the pinyon pine out into the desert, all these different, you know, areas that our people are part of, that our people live in. That speaks to the blessings that the people, our people had on these lands. And usually I, I start with a question asking, how many of you speak more than one language? I'm not going to do that because even though some of you raised your hand, that was beautiful. But, um, you know, I know you just couldn't take it. You had to do it. That's all right. But, but, you know, the point I'm making was it was very common for our people to speak four, five, six languages because of that language diversity, because communication is important. You see that in Europe. You see that in parts of Africa, Asia. What happened here? When we talk about language, we're also talking about the land, land base, land mass. You know, we talk about this land that our, 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 our people are on, these lands, the traditional lands for the people in this area and other areas. When I ask sometimes, where is the Holy Land? People will say Jerusalem. We go, not for us. This is our Holy Land. Each mountain, each stream, the ocean, all these different places. The Creator and our creation stories talks to us about that, teaches us about that. We learn about this because we are part of this. We're not here to control this land. We are part of it. We have a reciprocal relationship, not just with the land, but with the animals, with all the things here, because we are part of this landscape. And our culture, you know, uh, I wanted to uh, applaud Mr. Valentin. I just got to share this, you know, uh, Valentin and I were born at the same hospital. I, I, I have to throw that out, man. We were both born in Dearborn Hospital in Madera, California. It's not there anymore, but, but we, we came out of there. But, you know, when, you know when, when we talk about our culture, all these things that we have here, all these things that we pass on from our creation story, this land, it teaches us how to conduct ourselves. It teaches us how to live from the moment we are born to the moment we pass from this world to the next world. Everything is a teaching. There are rites of passage from a baby to a child to a young adult. And as they continue on, eventually becoming an elder, all these things have ceremonies that we would do, all these ceremonies that we would do, the way that our people took care of our, uh, the lands that, that we were in. You know, Mr. Valentin was talking about the you know, the landscape out here, because of burning, we have our own epistemology. We have our own organic science, our own fire science. 
That helped this land. We, we helped each other. We were all healthy. This land, when we say this land is our mother, this land is truly all of our mother. She takes care of us and we take care of her. We do the best we can to take care of her. And the way we do that is the way we treat each other and the way we treat this land and our spirituality. You know, some people say that we're savages, that we're hunter-gatherers. They do not understand that we are close to the land, that all these things, all these ceremonies that we do were taught to us in our creation stories, were given direction by the creators to us, and we pass that knowledge on. I'm going to say this, ladies and gentlemen. We as Native people, we are no strangers to climate change. Many of our people, we have village sites that are under the Pacific Ocean at this time. It speaks to a time when we were here, the last ice ages. We say from time immemorial. We understand these things. In the desert, there's also fish trap sites. It speaks to a time when there was an ocean over there. Our people were there. Our people have this knowledge. All this knowledge, our sciences, all these things, ways of conducting ourselves. We're like the United Nations out here, dealing with many different groups. So then, so-called civilization came. September 27, 1542, Juan Cabrillo Rodriguez, no relation to me, came into California. What were they looking at? Look, they were looking at how to uh, uh, protect their assets coming in from Asia. And they were also looking for uh, places to do things. Land that they could exploit. Many of you have been products of the school system. And you've heard that uh, the California missions came and the Indians loved it. That is one of the most romanticized lies I've ever heard, because it's not the truth. Because our people, we fought. All of our people fought. And when the Spaniards came, I'm not going to say conquest. I'm not going to say we've endured three waves of conquest. We didn't. We've endured, we endured three waves of encroachment. But we are still here. If we are here, then that is resistance. Our ancestors are looking upon us now. But when they came, and they first came to San Diego in 1769 to put a mission there, and there were reasons why they did missions. And all these things that you hear about, oh, benevolence and everything, the, the truth of it is this. When the Spaniards overran the Mexica Empire. Those governments were centralized. They were able to take it over quickly. But there were uprisings that took place. And they used uh, the warriors from, those, from many different enemy bands to help suppress these things. The Mishtan War took place. The Spaniards were almost defeated. But they got Tlaxcalan and Aztec warriors to to help shore them up. And that was followed by the Chichimeca War. 
The reason why they were having so much hard times was because our governments up here are not centralized, or those governments as they went farther and farther north were not centralized governments. They were, as we call in my language, the shamuks, the clans. We ran that, and we were not sedentary. We were constantly moving because one of the things our scientists told us that if you stay in one place too long, what's going to happen? You are going to deplete all the natural resources in that area. So you had to give that land time to regenerate itself. So they came in with that f philosophy of weaponizing religion, weaponizing the missions. And they came to San Diego. And I can say with all pride, I am a mission-burning Indian because that's what our people did. We fought back, and we burned those things down. And, 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 and you know, there were other people. It wasn't just us. But they were, I mean, these people were, were nefarious in what they did to our people because they, they forbid the use of our language. They, they wanted to take away our spirituality, our culture, all these things to create a void so that they could put insert that with Spanish and then later on English. And what they, were going to, what they wanted to do was they wanted to uh, not just convert, but they also wanted to uh, teach the people rudimentary skills so they would have a servant caste waiting in, anticipating, in anticipation of Spanish colonists coming in. This is a fact. This is truth. This is historical. I'm not making this up. But our people fought back. Our people rebelled, and our people continue to fight. So I just wanted to share, share those things. Now, the bells. I want to say something real quick about the bells. I, I know you guys are going to say something, but I just want to say, look, you know, something that I've experienced. You know, we, we all see these bells at the missions. Well, some of the work that I do, I've, I've gone down to missions in Baja and Baja Sur, and I've also gone into Sonora, Mexico, in Sonora, Mexico, there's a group called the Kumkak. They're also known as the Seri Indians. And uh, a very proud people have resisted encroachment, you know, I mean, for hundreds of years. Well, I went over there, and I was talking with uh, one of the elders. And the language is vibrant. Even the little children speak it. They're isolated. But then I heard something. There was a bell that was ringing. And all the people got up. And they started walking to this building. I said, what is that? And the elder told me, a mission just got put up about six months ago. And every time they ring the bells five times a day. And uh, the pastor, he'll say some words and give food and stuff out. So the people go. In other words, conditioning the people again. You control a people's time, you control the people. And that's what these bells were all about. It was all about control. It wasn't about saving souls. It wasn't about doing these things. It was about exploiting resources. So I just wanted to share a little bit about that. And the last thing I wanted to share is I went farther south. And I went into the land of the, uh, the, the land of the Kochimi, uh, Waikura, and Piriku. The missions have uh, just devastated, raised havoc upon the people out there. When I go into a community, nobody speaks the language. Nobody knows any of the songs. Nobody knows anything anymore. The only tradition that they know is just the mission tradition. That is so painful to watch. 
or to see a mission that's there and the people are gone because of disease, the heartbreak, because all that knowledge that that group acquired over thousands and thousands and thousands of years is gone because the people are gone. So these things that, you know, we talk about, you know, we're coming out here and talking about these things, like the land base here. I just want to say this, if the Catholic Church wanted to do the right thing, they would give this land back to the indigenous people from that area. That is the right thing to do. A people without a land base is like a tree without roots. How are they going to grow? The seeds will continue to scatter until eventually they'll find it. And the other thing too, our ceremonies, our language, that is power, ladies and gentlemen. Although it's dormant, it can be brought back. It can be brought back. And it's going to take each and every one of you to do that within your own communities. Your language is power. When you start speaking your language, when you start you know, singing your songs, when you start doing your ceremonies, that is resistance. When you start coming back into your traditional areas and harvesting your acorns or nuts or all these things, that is resistance. And it shows the people all around that we are not gone, that we are not people of the past tense, but we are here today and we will continue because this is what the Creator left us. So thank you for letting me say some words. It's an honor to be here and see many old friends and make new friends. So as we say in my language, May the Creator watch over all of you. And these words bring much happiness to my heart. And I'm looking forward to this continuing. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And no uh, Lovic. Dr. Rodriguez. Okay. Um, next, we're going to have Dr. Gordillo. Buenas tardes. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Bernard Gordillo. And I'm a mestizo immigrant from Central America. And I come here to honor the Amamutsun tribal band's efforts to remove the El Camino Real bell markers from across the state. I would like to thank Critical Mission Studies for supporting my research project into mission bells in California, some of which I present today. I would like to thank Chairman Valentin Lopez and the Amamutsin Tribal Band, Dr. Stanley Rodriguez, and Dr. Jonathan Cordero for generously granting me their time and wisdom in consultation since last year. And so I begin with a, a bit of a story. This summer, during the first half of June, I traveled to all 21 missions in order to better understand each as a distinct place where the history and aftermath of Spanish colonialism continue to impact the present. I wanted to get a sense of place by reflecting on the missions as sites of violence, sites of death, sites of shame. I went to study each mission through their church bells and proceeded to document them with audiovisual equipment. Out of the numerous moments experienced during the trip, there was one at Mission Soledad that stands out. On a hot and sunny day, with a ferocious wind blasting through the Salinas Valley, I set up my equipment at some distance in front of the entrance to the small, nondescript replica mission chapel. 
To the right of the entrance, close to the corner of the building, sat an El Camino Real bell marker, a commonplace if unsettling sight at every mission. To the left of the entrance, supported by a wooden beam jutting out from the side of the building, hung a rusted church bell in a uh, cast in a Spanish colonial style. Unlike the bell marker, this bell was meant to be functional. It was intended to sound. As I stood there stabilizing the camera in between strong bursts of wind, a couple passed through the very scene I was trying to capture. They were on their way to the parking lot and had likely taken in the modest mission grounds, museum, and chapel interior, part of a general fantasy mission experience that may have been the impetus for what happened next. While passing in front of me, they paused at the functional bell and one of them pulled on the chain hanging from its mouth. The sound that emanated from that bell, still ringing in my memory, is paused for reflection. Why do church bells continue to ring at the California missions? A search for an answer to this question may not be as self-evident as the most immediate response implies. In this presentation, I will address why the visual representations of mission bells that pervade California, particularly evidenced by the El Camino Real bell markers and the rain cross bell of Riverside County, are inseparable from the functional bells displayed or rung at all of the missions and their respective early histories. Firstly, I will situate the church bell and its sound within the Catholic European tradition as an instrument for the mediation of divine and earthly power as a tool for the regulation of communal time and order, and as a weapon for the establishment and maintenance of Spanish colonization. Secondly, I will place this tradition in context of the California missions during the Spanish period. Lastly, I will connect the historical employment of the mission bell to its modern day guises in California. It is my hope to show that the El Camino Real bell marker, far from the seemingly benign symbol replicated and installed across the state as part of alleged civic service by elite social groups, is an otherwise remarkable and pernicious emblem of violence that reinvokes the horrors of Spanish colonialism. And no amount of rhetoric, action, or appropriation, regardless of their motivation, can purify the mission bell and its representations of their violent origins in California. Since the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church has employed the bell as an instrument for the mediation of divine and earthly power. The bell generated a sound that echoed the voice of God, at once projecting his authoritarian commands and omniscience over a space as auditory signals. The soundscape scholar R. Murray Schaefer has asserted that the church bell had both centripetal and centrifugal power. God's metallic and sonorous bell voice was thus, quote, centrifugal in the sense that it frightens off of evil spirits, and centripetal in the sense that it draws people together for collective religious observance, end quote. Those who controlled the bells wielded divine power through human intervention. The principle of these was a monopoly over European constructs of time. The religious orders of priests, monks, and nuns through churches and monasteries controlled the marking of time and imposed social discipline via the bells. Philosopher Michel Foucault has noted, quote, the religious orders had been masters of discipline. They were the specialists of time, the great technicians of rhythm and regular activities, end quote. Long before the Spanish encroachment and the ensuing pathogenic cataclysm wrought upon the Americas, church bells were synonymous with Christendom as established by the Catholic Church. 
The bell was a tool for the regulation of time and order throughout Europe. Cities, towns, and villages were bound to and by its sound, one so common as to denote local identity. Historian Alain Corbin has observed, quote, bells shape the habitus of a community, or, if you will, its culture of the senses. They serve to anchor localism, imparting depth to the desire of forerootedness and offering the peace of near, well-defined horizons, end quote. With colonial expansion on the American continent, Spain intended to reproduce a traditional European model of community, placing the mission church as the focal point of a given settlement. Church bells played an integral role in the maintenance of daily life at each mission in Alta California. However, there was neither rootedness nor peace to be had at any of them. The violence, illness, and death resulting from contact and a seemingly permanent colonial settlement inhibited the stability of a foreign and unwelcome communal model. Yet the bells did shape the habitus of a mission through the creation of an artificial community. They ensured that the native population, forced to live, worship, and labor within its sonic bounds, submitted to oppressive colonial exigencies. The church bell was used as a weapon for the establishment and maintenance of colonization. As the Spanish Empire spread across the globe, church bells accompanied the expansion of Christendom and Christianization. The Spanish introduced three explosive sounds as they founded mission after mission in Alta California. These sounds emanated from the cannon, the musket, and the church bell, all unprecedented sounds that challenged the thunderbolt as the loudest prior to their revival. While the first two terrorized and annihilated native people, the bell was much more subtle in its deployment. Far from instilling a Pax Hispana, Spanish peace, the Franciscans inflicted tremendous suffering through the mission bells in Alta California, a point to which I'll explain a bit more in a minute. The bells rang no matter what, as God's metallic voice dominated the Christianization process. The nature and function of the church bell in Alta California characterized what I call the mission bellscape, a sonic landscape consumed by bell sounds. A general landscape can be divided into four components, the source object, sound, time, and space. The source object is the bell itself, cast out of metal, tuned to a definite pitch, and typically inscribed with a date and other text or symbols. The names of the eight bells at Mission San Luis Obispo are a case in point. The five that hang, currently, in the bell wall above the portico of the main entrance to the church are named after the first missions founded in Alta California. The three historical bells on display in the mission courtyard, each dating back to the Spanish period, were given names associated with the function to which they served, joy, gloria, and sorrow. The Franciscans imported bells from Spain or elsewhere in the colonies. Once arrived, they consecrated the bells, thus converting them into holy objects. Missions typically owned a collection made up of different sizes and tones. Newly founded missions might have one or two bells that hung from a beam supported by a pair of freestanding posts. If the mission grew in size and wealth, so might the number of bells and their supporting structures, in which case they hung from the elevated piercings or openings of either terraced bell towers or espadañas, bell walls. Each architectural structure focused and directed bell sounds. The tower in particular may have served as an acoustic resonator, giving the sound weight, projection, and a severity of command. 
Like the source object, the bell sound was also sacred and thus, and thus sacralized time and space, though it may not have been received or understood as such. This hallowed sound permeated settler and native spaces alike in and around the mission buildings, imbuing everything in its path with an air of sacredness, at once a reminder that God was watching. Bell sounds communicated signals to the population within the mission bellscape. Although they were used to historically sound alarm, celebration, or commemoration, Spanish chroniclers tended to link these signals to joyful or solemn events. Yet there were other, more common effective associations that held dark consequences for the California Indians. A language of the bells was not only intended to condition and discipline the native body while separating it from native notions of community, but the sound carried an implicit threat of force. It is unclear exactly what patterns or combinations of bell sounds the Franciscans used at the missions, though they were likely a combination of practices dictated by official rules adapted to a given context. Yet a recollection by Amamutsan ancestor Ascension Solorsano de Cervantes offers a glimpse into bell ringing at Mission San Juan Bautista during the last decades of the 19th century. In her oral history recorded by J.P. Harrington at the end of the 1920s, Solorsano recalled, quote, These days they do not know how to ring the bells at San Juan. All they do is pull the rope and it seems like there is a fire. There are only two men remaining who know how to ring the bells, Ambrosio Rosas and Joe Rosas. There were four Rosas brothers who used to ring the bells for Father Closa. Francisco and Joaquinito have passed away. These four brothers served as Father Closa's acolytes when they were boys, and they rang the bells for him. When there was going to be mass, they said that the bells were being tolled, and when people died, they said that the bells were being doubled. Solorzano's recollection revealed a, glowing, a growing loss of knowledge of bell ringing customs at Mission San Juan Bautista. Those who carried that knowledge were aging or had passed away. Furthermore, the language of the bells had been reduced to a couple of signals devoted to common rituals overseen by the church. The practice of tolling and doubling, or repicar or doblar, uh, and their effective associations with joy and sorrow reached back to colonial Alta California, though was much, much older as a practice in the Spanish Catholic Church. These signals were so conventional that their distinctive sounds and patterns were as immediately clear to Solorzano as they were in her memory of them. The bells imposed a foreign construct of time and regimented the day chiefly towards work or religious devotion. The ceaseless ringing superseded Indian time and ruptured the sound territory of the land. The special reach of bell sounds characterized the mission bellscape. Scholars Kent Lightfoot and Ann Danis have called this expanse the proximal zone or, quote, area within earshot of the mission bells, end quote. Each of the missions had its own distinct proximal zone as primarily defined by the topography and geoacoustic properties of the land. Much of the native population forced to live at the missions fell within the zone, as it was, quote, typically kept under surveillance by the Franciscans and could be reached by the mission guards in relatively short order, end quote. The spatial reach of bell sounds not only delineated an invisible boundary surrounding the mission, but reinforced the colonial church's possession of the land and control over its inhabitants, while it sowed notions of colonial settler belonging and entitlement. 
As a further consideration of the mission bellscape, I will very briefly explore silence as a counterpoint to sounding or ringing and as the primary state of mission bells. In other words, mission bells were silent for most of the time. Yet this condition may be seen as, as menacing as the authoritarian nature of their auditory signals. In silence, bells loomed near or above the native population. Their sight would have been interconnected to their sounds as a sensory experience. Thus, seeing and hearing mission bells were inseparable from one another. This, I believe, is where the sensory violence of the mission period originates, and why any and all visual representations of mission bells in California invoke these colonial origins, particularly seen in the proliferation of the El Camino Real bell marker throughout the 20th century. By way of closing this presentation, I would like to make a couple of very brief points. How important is the mission bell to California history? There would have been no Spanish colonization without the mission bell. It was the linchpin of the enterprise. Mission bells, their sounds and representations still matter and are of grave relevance to native communities in that bells carry, deep, per, carry the deep permanent stain of colonial sensory violence in California. So I return to my initial question posed at the beginning. Why do church bells continue to ring at the California missions? I'm afraid that I do not have an answer. However, I do think it lies not with the Catholic Church, but with acknowledging the native descendants of the California missions. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Gordillo.